Right, good morning and welcome to this uh, hybrid event taking place both physically here in Brussels and online, which is kindly supported by Mitsubishi Heavy Industries and Yara, with your active as media partner. I'm Frédéric Simon, the Energy and Environment Editor of your active, and I will be your host for today's event, which is titled EU Green Deal Industrial Plan Accelerating Decarbonisation to Reach Net Zero. Now, today's debate comes just days after the European Commission published its uh, Net Zero Industry Act and proposal to establish a European hydrogen bank, which makes this debate, of course, very timely. And we do have speakers from the European Commission and from uh, the industry to help us navigate uh, through this proposal <clears throat> and understand its implications. But before I introduce the speakers, let me first uh, give the floor to Mr. Per Strand Schorster, Norway's ambassador to Belgium and deputy head of Norway's mission to the EU for some opening remarks. Mr. Ambassador, the floor is yours. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be here. I'd like to also first thank uh, both the Orient National and the Mitsubishi Heavy Industries for organizing this event in cooperation with Euractiv. The topic is, as we all know, indeed very high on the agenda, and that is for very good reasons. Norway and the EU are highly committed to achieving climate neutrality by 2050, and that is the important backdrop of what's going on. We work together to develop a decarbonized energy system and to boost green industry as well. Close partners and allies we also share the same extended home market, being members of the European economic area. The EU works towards the green transition has been marked by, in my view, strong drive and commitment. The EU has not been thrown off balance, despite several crises the last few years, including the pandemic, energy crisis, and the terrible ongoing war in Ukraine. The EU has a good track record, in my opinion, in crisis management. The EU is filling now up the toolbox. The Green Industrial Plan is an important component. In addition, in my view, EU trade policy, also very relevant for the green shift, has become more assertive and focused on resilience and open market, open strategic autonomy the last few years. I think also it's important to acknowledge, if you look at the big picture here, that the main drivers of green transition are companies, research, technology, innovation, and skills combined with changes in consumer behavior. However, public authorities, both nationally, regionally, on the EU level, can help and assist in this transition in three basic ways. By setting high ambitions and objectives, by establishing a sound regulatory framework and the financial incentives, and thirdly, by supporting clusters in technology, research, innovation, education, as well as so-called off-takers, consumers. 
looking across the Atlantic. I think I could say that Norway is basically positive to the fact that the United States is now stepping up efforts in the green transition and fighting climate change. However, it is important that these efforts in the US, including the Inflation Reduction Act, do not discriminate against European business and stakeholders. A strong partnership between Europe and the US is necessary to achieve our common objectives. This partnership must also include Norway being part of the internal market and fully integrated into European value chains. I think we could say that one lesson learned from Russian aggression and war in Ukraine is that energy security is essential to succeed in the green transformation. Otherwise, we will lose industry, they may relocate, and public support will decline. Norway will combine the role as a major and reliable provider of natural gas and energy security in Europe, and at the same time, contribute with full speed ahead in the green industries, energy, and transition. Norway is one of the biggest producers of renewable energy already today in Europe, primarily from hydropower. Moreover, we have high ambitions for deploying offshore wind of 30 gigawatts by 2040. I think we can say that we all follow with keen interest recent proposals from the Commission to fill the green industrial plan with substance. Norway shares the objective of creating a competitive framework to boost net zero technology, strategic raw materials, and production capacity in Europe, in addition to diversification abroad. We, on our side, we have high ambitions for technologies related to especially offshore wind, hydrogen, CCUS, and green industry, as well as, as I said, critical raw materials. Generally, we believe from the Norwegian side that the state has a significant role to play in the green transition. At the same time, I think it's fair to say that one should be somewhat cautious with market intervention. The biggest asset of Europe is, after all, a well-functioning internal market based on market principle. The Commission proposals make a lot of sense, in our view, focusing on targets, mobilizing finance, accelerating the permitting process, boosting competence and relevant skills in the workforce. We also welcome increased attention in the Commission proposals towards CCUS, which is an important tool in the green transition. The Longship project in Norway as you may be aware, is a full-scale and first demonstration project for CCS in the whole value chain. We look forward to the strategy on the CCUS to be presented by the Commission later this year. Hydrogen can be another key component in the green transition, as well as ammonia. The objective of Norway is to promote the full-scale 
hydrogen market along the whole value chain, both in Norway and with partners in Europe. We participate in the EU Hydrogen Alliance and IPSAI. Blue hydrogen may play an important role, especially in emerging hydrogen markets. The presence of green hydrogen will increase over time, which we must welcome. We agree with the Commission that a comprehensive approach is essential to get the markets up and standing. Finally, whether EU initiatives to boost the green industry and energy transition are strong enough to assist in developing these new markets and technologies remains, after all, to be seen. Europe may also be inspired by partners and competitors abroad. But more important, perhaps, EU initiatives show a strong dedication to succeed, and I believe that's extremely important, and also it's most welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ambassador. So let me now uh, introduce our uh, panelists, starting with, uh, on my left, Alexa Tomczak, who works in the cabinet of Commission Executive Vice President Franz Timmermans. Hildegard Bentele, she's a German lawmaker in uh, the European People's Party uh, in the European Parliament. Lisa Winter, she's Senior Vice President at Yara, the biggest fertilizer and ammonia producer in the EU. Kentaro Hozomi from Mitsubishi Heavy Industries, one of the global leaders in hydrogen and carbon capture technology. And Peter Rolofsen, director at Tata Steel in charge of strategy. Welcome to all of you, and thanks for joining us today. Uh, a brief word of introduction uh, for the audience. So this is uh, an interactive conference, and you're absolutely welcome to put questions to the panelists. To do that, uh, please go to the Slido website or scan the QR code that you see here on your screen to go to Slido. When you're there, you should enter the hashtag decarbonization, and uh, from there, you can start asking your questions. We'll try and take as many as possible towards the end of this event. So I think I'm done now with uh, the introduction. So uh, to get the conversation started, let me turn to you um, and with um, you know, a, a question about the Commission's uh, timing of this proposal. So last week there was um, this Net Zero Industry Act. Uh, the big surprise for me at least was that the proposal for the Hydrogen Bank uh, came together with this. I mean, this is, was something that was supposed to come out in Q4, I think, initially. So why did the Commission decide to uh, push this forward? Um, and when do you think this Hydrogen Bank will start uh, operating? Yeah. Well, uh, thank you very much uh, for your question and uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, indeed, we have uh, initially planned to have the Hydrogen Bank uh, uh, launched in May, on the 17th of May. The decision was taken to advance it uh, uh, to March. Uh, why? Because, well, we see it as uh, one of the first implementing steps for the Net Zero uh, Industry Act. If you, if you take the Net Zero Industry Act as a tool for Europe to, on one hand, to address strategic weaknesses and, on the other hand, to also build on the strategic strengths that we have in clean tech, 
uh, hydrogen is where we have some uh, strategic uh, strengths uh, and assets that uh, we want to, to, to expand on. Um, just to give you know, a few numbers, 50% uh, of uh, the electrolysis capacity uh, globally is, is in the EU. 30% of projects that are in the pipeline globally are also uh, based in the EU. We also have uh, half of the world's uh, manufacturing capacity for um, electrolyzers. So we have a really good starting point. The idea to have the hydrogen bank is to break uh, this chicken and egg situation where we have uh, producers of renewable hydrogen waiting for clear offtake signals uh, uh, from potential consumers of hydrogen and uh, potential consumers of renewable hydrogen are waiting for producers to take their final investment decisions. So the hydrogen bank is, is aimed to break this chicken and egg situation and to help Europe uh, really build on this uh, strategic uh, advantages and competitive advantages that we have in the area of hydrogen. So uh, I understand there was a sense of urgency uh, at the European Commission, which was probably because of uh, the Inflation Reduction Act uh, in the United States. So when, uh, when do you expect this hydrogen bank to start uh, operating, Alexandra? Yes, well, uh, so um, what we said in the communication was that uh, we give ourselves uh, a year to implement the four blocks that we outlined for this, uh, for the, for this hydrogen bank. And the first, I think, really exciting milestone is uh, in autumn this year because we will launch uh, our first auction. Uh, for the producers of renewable hydrogen. So under the Innovation Fund, uh, we will run an auction uh, uh, for a fixed a premium that renewable hydrogen producers can get via the Innovation Fund for a fixed amount of subsidy per kilogram of renewable hydrogen that they are ready to produce in 10 year, uh, years contracts. And that's indeed quite similar to uh, the support scheme uh, uh, under the IRA, because we're also talking about a fixed premium with the difference that here we will have a competitive bidding process, so the renewable hydrogen producers that need the lowest subsidy will win uh, uh, the auction, so we make it a sort of a better deal for the, for the European taxpayer. And that's going to happen in, uh, in autumn uh, this year, 800 million euros uh, for the first auction. Uh, President von der Leyen announced uh, last year in State of the Union speech that we would have uh, at least 3 billion euros uh, for this hydrogen bank. We are ready to spend that much under the Innovation Fund. If we manage to get more money for the Innovation Fund, we are ready to spend even more. Uh, but the idea is to first run this first auction, see how many projects are, are interested in, in competing, what's the level of interest of the industry, and then on that basis design you know, the auction schedule uh, later on. Okay, so the time frame is, is pretty short, pretty, uh, pretty fast, pretty ambitious. So uh, Hildegard Bentele, turning to you now. Um, in the EPP, you always care about you know, improving Europe's competitiveness. So were you satisfied with the Net Zero Industry Act that was presented uh, last week and the hydrogen bank proposal? Yeah, uh, to be honest, we are still analyzing it because it's pretty comprehensive. Uh, uh, but of course, we welcome it. I mean, we called for um, yeah for more action in this regard. Um, it's a bit of pity that it's all as perceived also as a reaction on the IRA, and we would have of course loved to be more proactive. But okay, it is a reaction, and it's a timely reaction. Also for the hydrogen bank, um, it was part of the hydrogen strategy. What we were calling for the Parliament in twenty one. So it is. We spent two years, two two more years. 
but okay, if the call of emergency has reached the Commission, it's, it's fine. So uh, I think uh, the EPP and many of my colleagues are now ready to deliberate pretty fast in the Parliament because I perceive it important that we finish this legislation in this term. That means we do not have a lot of time left, so I think we really have to speed up procedures. Uh, I'm ready, my group is ready, so we try to you know, also signal to, the, to, to industry that we mean it and that they can really plan with, with the things which are now on the table. How do you expect things to shape up in the European Parliament in terms of the timeline? What, 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 you've got milestones already ahead or is it too early? Well, I, I can mainly talk about the CRM Act, which also came out because I was a rapporteur. So uh, we try to have the first draft before the summer break so that we can, you know, Parliament closes its deliberations until the end of the year. So this should work. Uh, I don't know how much time we need to discuss the, uh, the net zero uh, industry plan because we did not have so much time to prepare for it. So um, yeah. maybe this might take a little bit longer, but for the raw critical raw materials, which were also mentioned, which are part, I think, of the industrial competitiveness, a very important part, I think we are pretty ready to, to do it pretty fast. Yes, it's, it's part of a package indeed, and critical raw materials um, are indeed in there as well. So uh, Lisa Winter, um, Yara, they're the biggest producer of ammonia in the EU, and that can be used as a carrier uh, for uh, hydrogen. So what did you make of the Commission's proposal for a European hydrogen bank? Do you think it goes far enough, and do you think it will break this chicken and egg situation? Um, from, from, from our perspective, I think it uh, it's, um, can help. <laughs> but I, I think still it's, uh, it's a long way to go. Uh, and and um, I think for, for the industry as, as us, it's the, um, the, the predictability is extremely important for making large investments. And, uh, and, um, and to make, for instance, uh, uh, new two, three billion investment, if you're going to build a new ammonia plant, then, then we need to have predictability. And, uh, and, um, and, and, and then, of course, um, for instance, if we want to import hydrogen into to Europe, that is uh, then, of course, the, we, we understand that we need to have a, a competition, but it still makes maybe one ball, we make one ball, but will, we, will Europe be able to make the ball rolling? That, uh, for instance, um, if we compare with with, uh, with US, then uh, we know that if we invest in US, uh, we will get uh, a tax deduction if we comply with certain rules. And then if we make one project, we will get it. If we make the second project, we will get it. So then you, have a, you, you will get a ball rolling. Mm. And I think that is where uh, I see the challenge uh, with um, the system we have in, in Europe, that we can make one ball, and will the next project also uh, be able to to uh, to get the, the support? And I Do think you believe there are some missing pieces of the puzzle. Which which ones are they? I, th the, I think the main thing is is um, the the that needs to be predictable. That uh, that if you want to invest, you know that you will get funding. Uh, or the, the necessary funding to be a, a, at, the com or at a global competitive uh, level. Uh, and the other thing is that it should be technol technology neutral. For instance, uh, I think it's, uh, uh, it should be the CO2 footprint that you reduce and not necessarily what kind of technology you're using. Yeah. 
Yeah, so funding is indeed a bit more complicated probably yes. in Europe than it is yes. uh, in the United States. Uh, Kentaro, Hazomi, um, so Mitsubishi Heavy Industries um, are involved in hydrogen uh, <coughs> production uh, as well, but also carbon capture and storage uh, technology, which is uh, necessary to produce blue hydrogen. So uh, what was your reaction <coughs> uh, to the Net Zero Industry Act and Hydrogen Bank? Yeah. <coughs> First of all, yes, uh, I would like to start by what uh, the Mitsubishi Heavy Industries acting here in uh, Europe, European market. Yeah, so we have tra traditionally been, uh, you know, uh, serving to the industries uh, in the name of Mitsubishi Power for power generation, primary technology for the steel industries, Mitsubishi Heavy Industries for uh, fort uh, building fertilizer plants to customers like Yara. So this has been our, you know, I say, conventional traditional business, but now with this uh, energy transition in place, uh, uh, also the customers' needs are changing. So uh, in Europe, we are working with our customers in partnership together to find the solutions which will reduce their carbon footprints and uh, to uh, uh, still build a sustainable business case. So as a company, Mitsubishi Heavy Industries, uh, well, uh, well shortened it in uh, MHI, MHI has, uh, uh, you know, in 2021 already, we had set a mission called Mission Net Zero, meaning that uh, we would like, to, we will achieve uh, carbon net zero by 2040, 10 years ahead of the global target, uh, together with especially focusing on, uh, there are, of course, scope one and two and three, but uh, in terms of our business, uh, the main part comes from our scope three emission reduction. So. So that's why we are working with our partners uh, in order to find the way to de decarbonize, the, uh, to reduce the carbon footprint in that sense. So uh, what we see uh, today with uh, the situation in Europe is that, uh, of course, uh, the, net zero, uh, the uh, net zero industry act is one big step. Uh, but the reality uh, from the, uh, I would say, the industry side of view, is we still are in the phase of building up the supply chain for all these technologies. There's not yet an established supply chain of all these technologies yet. Uh, still, there are some trial and errors to uh, go through uh, in bringing all these technologies to commercial scale. And that's why we need a sort of joint development with our customers and ourselves, a company like our technology provider. And that's the case in Europe, but I guess in other regions of the world as well. Yeah, that's right. And uh, well, of course, I was what, uh, coming. <laughs> we are uh, playing globally. Uh, we are playing globally. So uh, when we work with our customers, also the customers are active globally. And uh, we are all thinking that where we can deploy such kind of solutions, which would be the most benefit for the client as well as uh, our side to, to deploy. So there are still various you know, opportunities uh, globally. And You're still assessing this? Uh, uh, you know, the, do, yes. Is there this Net Zero Industry Act, do you think it will help tip the balance in favor of Europe in relation to uh, the US or yeah, in our, in our view, uh, we have, uh, uh, since I came to London in 2021, Europe was leading all the way uh, for such kind of uh, energy transition, you know, uh, 
policies and these kind of things. And uh, the situation today we view as the world is catching up. In some places, maybe overtook. Uh, but uh, still, uh, so uh, now uh, we see that this is a sort of uh, global competition already in where the uh, investment for energy transition should go. So already that uh, com competitive you know, situation is already existing. That's what I see. So you see, you're saying Europe is still a bit ahead, but the competition is catching up yeah. fast, but yeah. not yet overtaken. And, uh, yes. So when we talk with our clients, like uh, uh, other clients, uh, what we see that uh, whether this uh, Nuclear industri Industrial Act is enough to make our clients go for the final investment decision or not. Is this enough or not? This is going to be still uh, an aspect which mm. has to be seen. Yeah. yeah. So let me turn to you, Peter Rolofsen, um, from the perspective of Tata Steel. Uh, do you believe now there's a better business case in the European Union, or soon will be a better business case with the Net Zero <coughs> Industry Act? Yeah. <coughs> Sorry, uh, I need some water probably. But um, Tata Steel is maybe I start with Tata Steel. Um, that steel steel company which produces 34 million tons of steel globally, seven in Europe at, at the moment as we speak. Well, that's the minority. Uh, that's the minority. We look at it from a global perspective also at these developments, so not just Europe but also globally. And yeah, for us the key question is, you know, where should investments go in that context? And uh, well, we have a significant operation in Europe, seven million tons. We need to decarbonize. We know that the steel industry is one of the largest emitting industries that we have. In Europe, it's around 5.7% of emissions. What we see is that the steel industry, um, to a large extent, moves to hydrogen-based steel making, will be one of the largest consumers of hydrogen as well, also here in Europe. So for us to make such an investment, we need to have clarity that hydrogen will be sufficiently available at competitive costs, and we need to know that timely enough because we need to make those very large investments not just in the hydrogen part but also in the manufacturing part before that. And what we see is that these recent developments, they are very positive. We embrace them also, but uh, I think, yeah, increased clarity and certainty that when you make the investment you will have actually access to those hydrogen is critical in that context, in the large amounts that the steel industry needs. What we see is that also the budgets that are announced currently with the Hydrogen Bank, they're not yet sufficient at all to support a steel industry, uh, maybe even a steel company of an average size in Europe. So uh, really what, what we need is, uh, you know, more skill, increased clarity and certainty to investors. I think that that will help a lot. Yeah. So the visibility has improved um, in your view, yep. nevertheless, but there are still some, some missing elements. Yep. Um, Alexandra Tomczak, um, uh, maybe you can explain to me how uh, the European Commission with the proposal that, or the series of proposals that we saw uh, last week uh, tried kind of squaring a circle, it seems, between on one hand trying to repatriate manufacturing from abroad to, to Europe, or at least keep some manufacturing uh, in Europe for clean technologies, and at the same time, keeping European industry uh, competitive 
and reducing carbon emissions because these objectives are not always uh, go together. I mean, sometimes they can be uh, contradictory. So uh, how did you try and square that circle uh, at the European Commission? Yeah, well, I, I think that your question makes me think about uh, this um, uh, energy trilemma that uh, I think many people used to, uh, uh, to, to talk about, especially when we started our uh, renewables policy, where you had affordability, sustainability, and security sort of in three different cor corners of the triangle. And you, Meaning you go for one, you go further exactly. away from the other. And there was, and there was a trade-off. So you know, you would probably put fossil fuels somewhere around the security angle, also in the affordability, and then renewables were ticking the sustainability box, and clean technologies in general were ticking the sustainability box, but not the security or the affordability. And I think the, it, we're really in a very interesting moment of this clean energy transition where now clean tech is really in the middle of that triangle. Uh, there is a, a, a massive uh, uh, security and, and resilience uh, uh, challenge. Uh, renewables and clean tech are seen as a response to that challenge. We have also seen over the past uh, few years that in comparison to volatile fossil fuel prices, uh, clean energy was providing more uh, affordable prices to consumers and and uh, what we have tried to do also with the electricity market design reform is to give uh, more direct access to, uh, of consumers to these affordably uh, priced uh, technologies. So the net zero industry act has to be seen in and what our other partners are doing has to be seen in the context of this. I think there is a sort of a, a, a global um, uh, um, awareness which is raising on the fact that clean tech is ticking at the three boxes. And now we in the EU have been uh, leading in innovation um, globally, leading in deployment globally. We're the first continent that has uh, uh, given itself this um, objective to become climate neutral. And now we're looking at the manufacturing side of things and we're assessing our performance against um, our uh, partners and competitors. And in some areas, we're doing pretty well, like hydrogen. But the challenge is now that we enter mass manufacturing, how to retain that lead. In other areas, uh, like wind, uh, we're, we're doing pretty OK, but we are exposed to a lot of international competition. And in other areas, like solar, we have a lot of catching up to do with, uh, uh, with really making sure that we have, um, you know, um, uh, a certain market share with uh, with the annual deployment uh, deployment needs, and so the Net Zero Industry Act is, you know, basically taking stock of that situation and providing tools to to be able to respond to 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 this uh, to, to to this new, let's say, um, uh, global challenge. The, typically, the cost structures that European companies will have will tend to be a bit higher in Europe than in other places. In the US, energy is much cheaper at the moment. Um, in China, labor costs are much uh, lower. I mean, can we ever be able to really compete um, on, on, on equal terms? Well, it's, uh, it's, uh, I think the, the, there's one thing that we should say. It's not about 
producing everything in Europe because uh, one of the well one of the facts that I think it's also important to recall in a conversation like this one is that if we saw these dramatic reductions in the cost of uh, clean energy and renewables over the past 10 years it's also because we were um, benefiting from this international competition uh, so um, uh, I would say that you know the objective is not to repatriate uh, everything uh, to Europe this is not uh, the strategy. The strategy is to build on our uh, strategic strengths, like in, in the area of, of hydrogen, but also to address the strategic uh, weaknesses. We have to be smart about how to uh, make sure that we still use the benefits of this global competition and, and help our companies uh, be uh, 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 the beneficiaries also of these global competitions and international trade. Hildegard Bensele, uh, what do you think of this? There's, there, it seems there's a balancing act, uh, obviously, to be made between how much we want to um, uh, produce here in Europe and maintaining a, a trade, uh, a vibrant trade system, which brings cheaper products as well to, uh, to Europeans. No, I agree with Alexandra to a large extent. I think, I mean, we care about jobs. I'm, I'm, an, I'm, a, uh, I'm an MP, so my voters are asking me, what do you do you know, to keep jobs in Europe? Um, so uh, we have to pay attention a lot you know, to this question. But for example, if you look at solar panels, the question is really because they have dropped so much in, in cost, so they're available now all over the place. But a lot of jobs are, are in maintenance and you know, installing you know, the solar panels. So there, is, there are jobs out there, even if you do not produce all the solar panels here in Europe. If I look into batteries, for example, there's such a you know uh, fast development with regard to batteries because in China, you know, they replace lithium, so they are already in the next phase. So I think it's very important that Europe plays on its advantages, which was innovation, which was technology leadership, that we invest in our skills, in our also into horizon, in our you know research capacities. I think that's very important. Um, because, as you said, it's hard to compete to a certain extent with labor costs. So we need to cut the edge. So that's very important. And this is also, we have to tell our, you know, our Europeans that, that, that this is very important. But on the other side, um, as I said, I'm also working on uh, critical raw materials. Of course, we do not want to uh, see a heavy industry leaving Europe because we need because we also look into our value chains. So it's also strategically important. As we have seen, we have a new situation with the war. I mean, we, we have seen the pandemic. We have seen supply chains interrupted. So we have to think about a certain you know, element of autonomy. This is why, I mean, not autonomy, but independence. I would call it independence. So we cannot fully rely on you know, working supply chains. We have to prepare for sanctions towards China. If, China attacks Taiwan. So, I mean, we need to have some basic, you know, some basic functioning value chains in Europe. And this is why we need the whole set of industry. So this is why we need to take care of our steel and, and you know, chemical industry and so on. Yeah. That, we need to rebalance the, yes. uh, <coughs> the equation. Mm -hmm. um, Lisa Winter, we were talking essentially about the comparative advantage that European companies can have over others uh, across the world. So what do you think could be, when it comes to hydrogen, uh, the comparative advantage that European companies have or can have? I think, first of all, um, Europe has a quite a large uh, base of industry that is uh, it's here and it's uh, running. 
So I think it's also, uh, we don't need to invest, but we need to decarbonize, but we don't need to invest in new plants. We have infrastructure available. So, so I think that is a competitive advantage compared with if you want to, to uh, greenfield uh, building in other, other areas. So, so um, but of course, uh, it's important to, to um, build the, uh, the um, supplier chain, but you also need to look into the full value chain. I think it's the, the one thing if the electrolyzer suppliers uh, get support, but uh, the electrolyzer supplier doesn't build a plant or build a total electrolyzer plant. They build the technology, some part of it. But uh, I think they need to have a focus on the total value chain here, not, uh, not only the, uh, the, the uh, manufacturers. Uh, and that, that is an element that I think should be also be incorporated. Uh, and related to the competitive analysis, as I said, the, the infrastructure is extremely important. It's a huge part of investment cost, the infrastructure cost. It's, uh, uh, if you look into, for instance, if building a new uh, greenfield uh, uh, ammonia plant, the electrolyzer part is maybe 10, 15 percent. Mm -hmm. so, so I think that is... These facilities uh, exist already. Yeah, and, and, and you can say, so, but of course, uh, building a new electrolyzer plant is extremely costly. And, and, and also, this is, this is uh, industry that requires scale. It's not small scale, it's, uh, it requires scales to be economic. Taro mm Hazumi, -hmm. about this issue of comparative advantage, what do you think could be uh, the comparative advantage of European companies compared to others? Yeah. Uh, hydrogen and uh, yeah. the other. Well, uh, before talking about the comparative advantage of uh, Europe, well, first, uh, uh, we're not building uh, motor cars. Mitsubishi Motors does it, but we don't. So <laughs> I'm not talking about EVs at this moment. Uh, we talk about uh, the industries. And in this, uh, uh, where we see the industries, one example is that uh, earlier this month, there was Sarah Week in Houston, United States. Sarah Week used to be a big conference for oil and gas industries. But now, I've been there last year, not this year, but last year. Uh, but this has completely changed to a sort of conference for climate action. So that's what the IRA has brought in the United States. And one of the uh, you know, uh, conversations there, I heard it, uh, Senator, Senator Manchin, who was the you know, uh, center figure for this IRA, has said that uh, they noticed the relevance importance of the carbon capture because they see that uh, fossil fuel, although uh, 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 if it is used without carbon capture, it will harm the climate, but uh, you, you, the United States sees that uh, re looking at the reality of the world, still this fossil fuel is necessary for the development of economy globally. So means that carbon capture has to always go with that in order to mitigate climate impact. So this means that, uh, uh, so they have noticed that and they have put a good, a great importance in the carbon capture technology and deployment of carbon capture in the, United, uh, the IRA. Uh, from that point of view, uh, as uh, uh, Tatus still said, uh, in order to decarbonize the industry, we need a huge amount of hydrogen for that. And this hydrogen cannot only be you know, procured from a single source or a single technology. We need all the greens, blues, any color of hydrogen to do that. 
And in order to, and that sort of competition of supplying hydrogen will, you know, reduce the cost to an affordable, affordable level. So that's. So you, you, you're saying, you know, by, by, by going for hydrogen of all these different colors. Yeah. Um, is the way to to scale up the production, yep. and therefore make European yep. or Europe an attractive place yep. for hydrogen production. Right? I believe so. Yeah. So I think already the world is looking at such kind of uh, options, and uh, based on uh, each regions of the world, they have their own advantage disadvantages. So now, what can they do to cope with such kind of requirement for hydrogen? They are looking at different technologies. And this is also a global competition already existing there. Yeah. Do you have the impression now, um, <clears throat> I mean, the, in the political discourse, political debates uh, happening here in Europe at least, you can see that there's quite a bit of tension between proponents of different colors mm. uh, of hydrogen, uh, to put it um, short. Uh, I mean, do you think this is helping? Um, uh, at all, and uh, and do you see the same kinds of debates happening elsewhere in the world, or is this just very European? Oh, uh, <laughs> well, uh, of course, uh, Europe has its advantage on, for example, the renewable power, offshore wind. They, there's a lot still some uh, unused potential of offshore wind, for example. So there uh, is a potential uh, for uh, reducing the cost of uh, green hydrogen. But uh, if you look at the whole value chain, not all the industries from this, for example, the wind energy. I'm also a board member of Vestas. And maybe all of you know that how difficult a situation is it for General Electric, Siemens, Gamesa, Vestas. Everybody knows that there's some issues in the value chain looking at the whole. So. That sort of a thing is um, making uh, difficult to make the next decisions for investing, investing into capacity and these kind of things. So that has to be also considered how we can build up the whole value chain together. This idea, I think the IRA is still not there. My honest opinion is that IRA is, uh, I would say, incentivizing certain areas of the value chain, but not the whole. <laughs> there is no general concept of that. So I think that's the way I think uh, Europe sh should build its com uh, competitive edge on. Europe has a more comprehensive view. Yes, that's right. Probably yeah. then. Uh, Peter Rolfson, do you, um, how do you see this comparative advantage uh, discussion shaping up when it comes yep. to uh, hydrogen? Do you think Europe can have decisive arguments in its favor? Yeah. Yeah, so if you look at the industry, and I would say the steel industry in Europe, um, does it have a competitive proposition? I think it does. Um, and that's partly because it does have assets today, it has infrastructure, same thing, it has the network, it has the proximity to the customer base. Um, so in that respect, uh, yeah, it, it could be competitive, but and I see we see regions evolving very rapidly now. What we see is that Europe has also a well-developed regulatory framework around say decarbonization, but uh, if I would look at it from a, let's, we call it often the carrot and stick mechanism, the, the, the stick is clearly well developed, the regulatory framework for that is also well developed, the CBAM is a critical component in that alongside the EOTS, 
but the effectiveness of that will be a critical part of it. And so, again, to ensure that this competitiveness is truly also uh, sufficiently uh, protected is a critical element in that. Um, and the other thing we see, as we said before, is that this, the, the, the carrot part, yeah, we see that in Europe there's that's still quite different bits of carrot and incentives and uh, subsidy opportunities, but is it enough uh, to truly make the jump? That is still the challenge. Fundamentally, um, if these things are properly resolved, I would think that uh, clearly the steel industry can act competitively in Europe, yeah, mm. also with hydrogen. And the, and the regulatory framework for hydrogen is not yet fully in place, right? So, I mean, how closely are you following the discussions happening in the, in the Brussels bubble? Well, what, uh, we are following it. Um, what we see is that um, the industries, different industries are defect, uh, affected differently by different regulations. Uh, some industries are affected by red two regulations, others aren't. And I heard the concept of an auction uh, also being uh, on the table here. We see that different regulations affect the ability and willingness to pay for hydrogen can differ also by sector as a result of these different regulations that act on different sectors. So, um, yeah, we do think that that needs to be looked at also to make sure that hard to bait steel sectors that, you know, uh, when the auction is there, it considers also that there are differences in sectors and that we make sure that all the sectors, including the steel industry, can actually make this jump to decarbonisation, given the enormous impact it has on CO2 emissions. Um, Hildegard Bentele, um, and I'll turn to you just, uh, just uh, after, but about this question of regulatory uh, coherence, this is something that the EPP is always very keen to try and um, uh, emphasise or improve. Do, do you have the impression that on hydrogen, you, you get the regulatory coherence that's, that's needed to have a vibrant uh, industry? Um, well, I think with regard to hydrogen, it's not so much the coherence, but it's the criteria, because we just discussed, you know, the colors. And we still discuss colors. I mean, as we know, the emphasis of the Commission is on green hydrogen, and of some of my colleagues on green hydrogen only. So if you put this emphasis on green hydrogen, and this is what I mentioned at the beginning, then we should have defined the criteria for green hydrogen already like a, a while ago. We are still struggling with this criteria. And, you know, we talked about planning security. I mean, there are off-takers. Um, I, I have more uh, the overview of what's going on abroad. We know many projects going on abroad in Africa and, and also in Saudi Arabia and so on. So they want to know if they can, you know, export their green hydrogen to Europe. They are ready. The plants are being installed. But I know from many insecurities, many problems, and we still have, you know, we have the new delegated act now on the table, but still uh, it, we had to rehaul it. And <laughs> to be honest, we are not still yet fully satisfied, but we are really considering, is it worth to give it back again? Just because we need now, we, we're losing time. So this is mm. a little bit the problem uh, about the regulatory framework around hydrogen. I think it's not so much the coherence, but really the, the criteria. It's really hard to see, and I think also with the global competition, why it takes us so long to define the criteria properly. 
if we have to be so strict anyhow, and if we are not more open to more kinds of hydrogen. I'm, I'm more on the side of industry who, you know, is into the scaling up and into, you know, going into the quantities and the bigger electrolyzers uh, than, you know, being too detailed and too specific now about certain colors. I mean, that's at least our approach in the EPP. We know we have no maturity currently for it, but I mean, we lost time, I think, at least two years. Do you believe there's a chance that the European Parliament might reject this delegated act? We're still discussing it. It's, it's under discussion, but as I said, we really, I mean, we do not want to lose more time. We really have to now check if it's worth, we will have, you know, many talks with industry also, if it's really worth to really, again, to mm -hmm. do the procedure. And then we would be very specific what should be, again, changed. But actually, the appetite to redo the exercise is not so big. Yeah. Lisa Winter, you wanted to interject. Comment uh, related to the uh, the colors of, of the hydrogen because uh, we we have um, in my portfolio we both have uh, blue projects and we also have green projects and and um, what we see is also for instance that we have um, we have our largest uh, European um, fertilizer production is in in the Netherlands and uh, there we have a project where we can um, reduce uh, eight hundred thousand tons of CO two. Uh, by um, um, it's already captured and then it uh, with then sequestration in Norway and uh, that is uh, then we can have this uh, ready by 2026 uh, and it's of course this is a huge investment and a long-term commitment and then of course if we then will get uh, a requirement of having 35 40 50 percent green hydrogen into that plant then then uh, we can't operate so, so it's, 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 uh, the point is more that it's the, 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 that requirement sets that project on risk, and, and can be uh, then okay, can we actually take a final investment decision for that project? So, so I think I think it's important to understand that the, these kind of elements uh, put the uh, investment decisions in place and, and postpones and it uh, uh, gets uh, uncertain, and, and I think that's that's why it's so important to, to get this the predictability on the schemes. And, uh, and, and, um, and also, shouldn't the, the target be to decarbonize? Because here we have the possibility to decarbonize. Mm -hmm. But uh, for instance, then, uh, if we should have green hydrogen uh, for that plant in, in Schleuskel, it would be 1.6 gigawatt hours per hour. Uh, and where will the electricity come from? Uh, and where will the electrolyzer capacity come from? And within 2030? From, from what we see, we don't see that that will be possible. So it will be, you can, you, could, you could actually have a risk of not investing and in reducing the, with 800,000 ton because uh, a requirement that is not possible. So the, essentially you're, you're saying it's, it's probably too soon to set strict uh, green criteria for hydrogen production. That's something that yeah. should come maybe a bit later. Yeah, and I think, what I think is that it shouldn't be either or, it should be both because I think it, the main point has to be decarbonization and it shouldn't be that it's only going to be blue and or green because it i, I think the the um, the blue will be a probably a bit quicker path to decarbonization right. while the green can build up and then green can compete uh, 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 over blue in the longer term but we need both in a transition period to be able to decarbonize. I think that is extremely important. Anything that's low carbon, essentially, you believe should be supported, not just yeah. renewable. Exactly. Right. I see everybody nodding, so <laughs> I'll turn to you, Alexandra Tomczak. <laughs>
Um, I mean, as we know, the Commission has put a lot of emphasis on, on the green um, side of hydrogen uh, production. So how do you see now within the Commission blue hydrogen with uh, CCS you know, as a kind of stepping stone also in the context of the gas prices uh, that we have now? Because this is something still relatively new. Um, we were still viewing gas as a stepping stone to, to a greener future. Now with the kind of prices we're seeing, maybe blue hydrogen doesn't really make sense or well, I think uh, I would agree with uh, the statement that we need both. We need uh, um, gas-based uh, uh, hydrogen with CCS, and that is why in the Net Zero Industry Act we are also breaking another chicken and egg by um, uh, making sure that by 2030 we will have a CO2 storage injection capacity of 50 million tons of CO2 uh, per year and we will work with the oil and gas uh, industry to, uh, to, to, to ensure that. So uh, at least project developers which are going to work on low carbon hydrogen, blue hydrogen based on gas, will have the certainty that we will have in the EU enough storage capacity for CO2. Uh, so uh, gas-based uh, uh, hydrogen is of course part of the strategy to scale up the hydrogen economy. However, um, the EU has always had a policy of promoting renewables, and there is a reason for that. The reason is that we are not the US, we don't have massive gas uh, resources, we don't have massive gas reserves, and uh, we have some coal reserves and resources, but even those in countries like Poland are mined at one kilometer underground. So our fossil fuel availability is, uh, is very low. We are extremely uh, um, dependent on, on imports, and that is the reason why, uh, shamelessly, we have been uh, putting a lot of emphasis on uh, renewable uh, power, uh, power generation. And when it comes to uh, hydrogen, for example, in the, uh, uh, in the hydrogen bank, again, the emphasis is on renewable hydrogen because this is where we see the biggest need to uh, scale this up. Uh, blue hydrogen is uh, already a much more uh, mature technology. What you need to add is the CO2 capture and storage component. This is what we are aiming to de-block as well with uh, the Net Zero Industry Act. But uh, it is quite clear that renewable hydrogen needs a, a much more significant uh, push uh, from a sort of incentive uh, perspective. Mm -hmm. Can I get you to comment on the standoff regarding nuclear-derived hydrogen? I mean, this is such a complex one because, I mean, everybody I talk to in this industry are telling me, why did we have to have this RFNBO, you know, part of the renewables directive? This is, this is the one, you know, uh, thing that's throwing the whole discussion, of course, uh, according to some people I've talked to. Is, isn't there a case to just withdraw RFNBOs from renewables directive and just get on with it? Uh, well, um, I, so uh, what, what are the benefits of producing hydrogen with nuclear-based electricity? I think, you know, looking at um, the, um, the, the business case behind or the business behind uh, hydrogen production, the biggest input that you have and the biggest cost that you have is the cost of electricity. And then the question is, where can you get the lowest uh, cost electricity in an energy system? And if you look at the levelized cost of producing electricity today in, in Europe, when it comes to new projects, it's clearly renewables that provide the lowest uh, uh, cost of electricity. So there is a clear 
uh, I would say, economic incentive to link uh, hydrogen production as much as possible with renewables, especially renewables which otherwise would have had to be curtailed. That's why it's so important to interconnect, uh, uh, interconnect um, the two. Now, if, uh, if there is a business case to build new nuclear plants and produce uh, um, hydrogen based on that, I would like to see the calculations of this really adding up because what we have seen so far is uh, nuclear projects being extremely expensive, um, uh, much more expensive than, than renewables. So I think, you know, here, just looking purely at, at, at figures, figures, it is quite clear that we should be going more towards the, the, um, the renewable um, uh, direction. And when it comes to the existing nuclear plants, which is, I think, also some, uh, um, some actors within the market and, and stakeholders believe that we can also produce hydrogen with the existing nuclear plants, we come back to this discussion, is it a good use of uh, low-carbon electricity to direct it towards uh, the production of, uh, of hydrogen? Shouldn't, it be, shouldn't we be expanding the amount of low-carbon and renewable electricity we have as we expand hydrogen production rather than plug electrolyzers into the existing uh, nuclear plants? And that is is why we had this whole additionality uh, mm -hmm. discussion under the Renewable Energy Directive, because we're talking about one segment, uh, industrial um, applications, but of course, alongside this, we have to plug uh, the electric vehicles, uh, we will electrify a lot of the, the buildings, uh, energy demand, so, you know, we're, we're looking at, at this from a system perspective. Yes, indeed, making the best use of the low-carbon electricity <laughs> that we have available always need to keep that in mind. Um, Kentaro Hosobi, about uh, blue hydrogen, um, uh, this target for CO2 injection mm. that came out last week, mm. um, how did you uh, perceive this uh, from your point of view at MHI? Yeah, uh, yes, it is, uh, I think, uh, a very positive signal uh, for investment. Uh, well, we, we, what we have to see is that uh, you know, uh, in Europe, the, 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 there are other issues which has been dealt with regarding the permits, I would say. So how quick can the permit process go is a thing which I have to see altogether. And uh, uh, also, uh, at the same time, Europe has announced that, uh, but uh, uh, I'm stationed in London. So uh, last week, uh, the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, uh, you know, uh, explained his budget, and in that there was uh, 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 a clear support from decarb for decarbonization. Uh, uh, the UK government will uh, invest 20 billion pounds in the next two decades to decarbonize, including carbon capture. It means uh, one thing is that they are not discriminating any color of hydrogen in their, you know, statement. And uh, I think uh, one reason is uh, basically, uh, although uh, the uh, manufacturing or the industrial footprints in UK has decreased, but I think it is a strong signal showing that they will not let the industry, you know, fade out. Uh, they will keep, they, they, there's a clear signal that they want to keep the industries decarbonized and they want to keep the employment. That is, I think, a clear signal from the UK government. And uh, I think uh, with this, uh, the investment, uh, I would say, uh, environment in UK will uh, dramatically improve. 
So that's what we are expecting with our partners to, uh, for, uh, it is a big step towards, you know, investment decision. So uh, I think the next step for Europe is to provide such kind of a clear signal that uh, I think the UK government's uh, announcement is a sort of commitment for at least 20 years to support carbon capture and this kind of business. So I think it is uh, because everybody's, I would say, question was that if you are reducing the use of fossil fuel, then the carbon capture business will also disappear <laughs> very quickly. That was the question. But now UK government has provided a sort of a question, uh, answer mm -hmm. to that will enhance investment. So this sort of, I think, a clear signal time frame. And you, you're saying the, the European Union could take uh, example yeah. from this. Um, yeah. So there's, there's a CCS strategy, is, is that right? Which is expected later this year, a strategy. Yeah. Huh? Mm. So, I mean, what would you like to see in there? What do you think would be the key components of, of such um, a proposal? Well, uh, well uh, I think, uh, yes, uh, it's just not only uh, because uh, uh, providing, for example, blue hydrogen at an industrial scale, we know that the capex is huge. Capex requirement is huge, meaning that in order for that to pay off, pay off at least, you know, 10 years, 15 years is required, meaning that unless we can, you can continue that business for 20 years, there's no sense of making any investments. So that's what our partners, the clients, would think. So making a, such a clear signal how Europe is going to approach that, this is going to be very important, I believe. Lisa Winter, um, so reflecting on the, the target that was uh, proposed last week by the Commission to have a CO2 injection target by 2030, do you think that is, is, um, is a major step forward for, for CCS and also for, for blue hydrogen? Yeah, yeah I think that is a, it's a, a step uh, in the right direction, and I think, but I think it's also uh, we need to look into the re realism in, in it uh, because at least so far it has been quite challenging to uh, to because to get the, the reservoirs, uh, <laughs> no one wants to have it in their backyard. So that is one element. So so one needs to set the target, but uh, how to practically implement it. But I think it's also. Um, uh, what, what I see, because U, UK has uh, quite a lot of, of um, areas where they can have uh, C, um, CO2 storage, Norway has. So, so to limit it only to EU, EU uh, of course EU can do that, but I think there should be, what, uh, what I think is important for the CCS uh, business to be more com competitive over time is to also develop a market, and then I think the North Sea has to also, you could be as a cross-border transportation of, uh, of CO2 uh, will be important to, to get the cost down and also to get the market for, uh, for more or less exchange CO2 across borders and also the London Protocol has, um, has uh, accepted, um, made it possible. But I think it's uh, to, to get that industry going, I think you have also need to have a better flow between EU and the surrounding countries. So you're saying the transport infrastructure, the, the, the pipeline networks essentially, or maybe the ships yep. uh, bringing the CO2 to the places where, yeah, where and, and it's that, injected, that, that should be the priority? 
Uh, yeah, it should be uh, added on, I would say, so, uh, to, to, uh, to ensure that, uh, that you not stick to that, uh, if you're going to have a blue project uh, wherever, that you have to store the CO2 in that specific area, that, you, uh, that we can develop a market on the CO2, uh, CO2 uh, what do you call it, uh, transmission. Peter Olufsen, um, when it comes to CCS, is this still something big for the, um, for the steel industry yeah. or <coughs> so more interested with hydrogen usage? So our main focus is to direct our investments to, um, and I think for most of the industry players, to uh, DRI-based steelmaking, which means that steel companies can initially run on natural gas and subsequently to hydrogen. Green hydrogen, I would say, is the preference, and you tend to see that also. So the the focus is uh, less, at least also from our side, to direct investments to the CCS, but really try to make the jump to new steel make fundamentally new steel making technology. And, uh, I would say that is our key focus in that respect, and hence CCS has a, I would say, a background role in that uh, context. So we really try to focus on new steel making technology. And, the, and these ones, I mean, essentially, which ones are there? I mean, steel making using hydrogen as a, as a source of, 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 of yeah. energy, essentially? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, we see uh, that companies make the shift to DRI-based steel making, uh, which, as I said, is natural gas-based or hydrogen-based, or companies uh, focus on increasing circularity using EF-based technology or a combination of that. Mm -hmm. And I think that is the, the directions that we're currently seeing. Uh, CCS uh, can have a role to play to reduce the CO2 emission of the existing asset base. But as I said, uh, focus increasing is to try to direct investment to the new steelmaking technologies, support uh, what I would say low carbon and also circular steelmaking. So that is, I think, the main focus in that context. And with Tata Steel, is it a combination of both, or? Um uh, I, for us, it's, uh, yeah, it, we are trying to shift to what I would call uh, green, clean, and circular steel making. And, and that, by definition, means it's a combination of both. Yeah. Okay. Um, so let me turn now um, until the end. I think we've got about 25 minutes left. Uh, to take questions from the audience. I see there are hands raised. Um, the, the questions, I'll take those coming from uh, Slido, which was supposed to come from there only. <laughs> now, um, I see there are, there are quite a few hands raised, so maybe I'm tempted to take questions from the audience. So the gentleman there in the middle Oh no, there's no mic. Sorry. So um, I'm 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 sorry because the, the conference is hybrid. So I'm being told that without 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 mics we can't do it. I'm sorry. But put your question on Slido. I'll try I'll try and pick them up. I'm sorry about this. Okay. So uh, uh, there's a question that came through Slido, which is for the industry participants on the panel. Uh, it's it's pretty straightforward. Will you choose to invest in the EU or in the US, taking into account the US IRA or the NZEA, IA, as we should uh, call it? So who wants to start, Lisa Winter? Invest in the US. 
Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that was clear. And that, and just because uh, I think that if you think about it, uh, gas is uh, one of our major cost present, and then gas prices. Gas prices are way lower. And yeah. then EU, they, we have the EU address, and then we have, uh, and then you have uh, while, and then and then um, and then USA have the IRA, and then uh, EU. But let's say if you invest and get, if you are luckily and you get some support because you don't know because it's not predictable, they might get down to here, but still, that is where you are. So if you're going to invest in new plants. I would say then we will go to US. Okay, Kentaro Hozomi. Yeah. Uh, not only the United States, but you have. Uh, well, uh, I made a couple of trips to the Middle East area this year, and uh, yes, uh, the the world there is quite dramatically changing. And I think uh, there was a huge impact of the CBAM uh, for uh, influencing their you know mindset, uh, meaning that. You know, if they can produce a green, clean product, green product, they can sell into the European market. That's what the CEPAM is attracting. Meaning that uh, also uh, in Europe, the renewable cost is relatively competitive, competitive, but it cannot match with the renewable energy cost in the Middle East, mm -hmm. the solar panels and strong wind. So CEPAM has already made. Uh, yeah, yeah. A so big, they big have this uh, energy cost advantage. And if you look at, as mentioned, the difficulty of transporting hydrogen, for example, you have to build the whole, the whole infrastructure. Why not produce a products there using very competitive green energy and sell that product into Europe? Mm -hmm. This could give a more affordable product to the European market. So in that sense, not only United States, but other areas which are impacted by CBAM is, I think, also uh, the, uh, the uh, investment is going to rise in the near future. Yeah. Peter Rolofsen. Yeah, we have a significant uh, base, asset base in Europe. I think we more look at so developments on IRA, what will be the response here in Europe on this one. For us, that's a key of focus item in that context. Yeah. So, sorry, what's the answer? Is it, <laughs> are you going to Europe or to the US? Our asset base is in Europe, so uh, I think for us the key thing is that the actual response in Europe is such that it allows us to continue the operations yeah, and, and invest. Okay. Um, so, other question coming through uh, the app um, is about the um, different business associations uh, relevant to hydrogen production and consumption. Uh, which have come out uh, pretty uh, critical um, about the net zero uh, proposal as insufficient um, by comparison to the IRA. How, um, how certain is the Commission that these proposals will protect EU production? And I guess uh, this is a question uh, for you then. Well, um, I think it's um, maybe to, to start. Um, it's I think it's it, it's not um, exactly accurate to compare uh, what uh, uh, the the level of subsidies given in the EU with the level of subsidies given in the US. Why? Because the American market is really starting from scratch when it comes to uh, to clean tech. I mean, we in Europe we have been doing this for the past uh, twenty years. 
as I said, we, we, we are most advanced on innovation, most advanced on deployment. We have a, a big uh, manufacturing base uh, in segments such as solar, growing also in batteries, uh, uh, quite good in, uh, in hydrogen. So we also have uh, long-term climate goals, which are fixed in, in law, which the, um, the US market doesn't have. So they have to channel all the, their energy, all their political uh, uh, will through the, through the subsidies. Right. That's, the, that's the only tool that they are putting on the table and that's, that's the subsidies. It's perhaps giving reassurances to businesses but God, it's really expensive for the taxpayers. Right. Uh, it's, it's an extremely expensive way of doing industrial policy. Uh, in the EU, we have the ambition of doing things uh, with a bigger benefit for the taxpayer. That's why we have a combination of different tools. Um, in the end of the day, uh, competitiveness is not built on subsidies. It's built on markets that are competitive and different actors competing against, against each other. Um, so to, to, to answer the, uh, the question, will we see hydrogen investments here in Europe, we are confident that, uh, uh, that uh, uh, the project pipeline that, that we have demonstrates that there is a high level of interest among industries to invest in Europe. Also because we have clear offtake markets, clear targets. We are discussing uh, um, demand quotas under the Renewable Energy uh, Directive. So. Uh, compulsory targets for renewable hydrogen uh, consumption. All of these elements make it an interesting market for, for investors to, uh, uh, to come and, and participate. Now, should, w could we do more if we had more resources under the Innovation Fund? Yes, we, we could do a, a lot more with the Innovation Fund if, um, if we can convince member states to, um, to play this game together rather than uh, setting up uh, 27 auctions in 27 member states, why don't we do it together via the Innovation Fund? Uh, we have also proposed under the Hydrogen Bank the idea uh, for member states to be able to use the auctions that we will run un under the Innovation Fund to, to spend their own money for projects which are located within their own territory. So we have different ways of being able to use that EU-level auction to really maximize value for investors, for hydrogen, for climate, but also for European taxpayers. Hildegard Bentele, I saw you nodding <laughs> several times. You seem to agree with the fact that subsidies aren't everything, right? Yeah, and I would also add that, I mean, um, the se planning security, I mean, the IRA has been pushed through by Biden, but what happens if Trump comes back? I mean, do you believe everything will stay the same? Might be, because it's considered to be a job project and so on, but I would not put my hand into this fire. So I think I agree with this regard more with Alexandra that we have developed markets. And I think we tackled a very big problem, which was mentioned very often by industry, which is permitting. And I think we can learn much more from Americans, you know, the way how they do business and how they, you know, give freedom to, you know, industry to operate. I think with regard to money and tax breaks and subsidies, it's really different. And, and, but in this regard, I also agree with Alexander, we could do much more if we joined our you know, forces and not you know, build up, you know, as she said, 27 promotion systems and so on. We should really overcome and think bigger and more strategic nowadays because we need huge investments and we need long-term investments. It's you know, no good um, answer to do it in, in, uh, on a national basis. I fully agree with you. We could exploit our potential much better. But in, in, in general, I would be a bit more skeptical to put everything on the American 
you know, it's a very new development, so I would yeah. be kind of a bit more skeptical. Winter? Uh, just a comment. Uh, um, what I mentioned was that if you want to uh, build a new new plant, but that, that of course you can't put all the eggs in one basket. That we know uh, history shows that that uh, is not uh, the best uh, choice. But that, but I think what what I think should be important for for EU is is uh, from from a, as from an industrial point of view. I, I think it's. It's um, if you're going to, uh, you, you have to apply for innovation fund. It takes time, and then uh, and and it's not predictable if you will get funding. So so I think the 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 predict, uh, predicti um, <laughs> predictable uh, is so important for uh, the the industry to take large investment. Let's say if you have 12 months, it takes 12 months to to uh, get an answer more or less, uh, and then. And then by by that time you're already behind because you you, uh, you can't take an investment decision before you have that answer. So so I think that the complexity within the EU system makes it very very difficult to navigate as an industrial player. I think and 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 it's also very uncertain. So, so that's on the funding aspect where probably it's going to be difficult to compete with the simplicity of the US IRA. But on the rest, uh, like Alexander Tromchak was saying. Do you, do you agree there's, there's a more coherent market for hydrogen, which is being built uh, in Europe with, with, with better conditions overall, if you take out the subsidy element? I would say on the market side, uh, I would say because we are, we are playing in a global market as a fertilizer uh, and, and or ammonia is, is uh, traded globally. And, and we, are, we, have, we are the world's largest trader of ammonia. So, so uh, that is uh, that's the world price, and then you have the just the logistic cost on on top of it. So, so um, in that perspective, I wouldn't say that Europe in, is particularly in a separate situation. I would say that so it's probably the same also for steel. And, yeah. Maybe a comment from any of you too. Yeah, <coughs> um, it has similarities. I would say uh, steel is a global product in that context, so I think that's that's not unfair. We do see a similar situation. I think speed is of the essence as well in this context. Uh, companies, steel companies, need to make decisions within the next five years. Hydrogen uh, decisions are associated partially with that. So I think this is about speed. When how fast can you? Uh, move, develop a more, I would say, develop maybe less scattered. If I uh, hear so, the, the incentive framework it doesn't mean it should only be incentive based, huh, but it should. Uh, it's a combination of a good regulatory framework with incentives. But on that latter part, what can you do in Europe to speed that up? That would definitely improve predictability uh, and uh, make it easier for investors to make decisions. I would say. Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, yeah. IRA supports, uh, for example, the, the uh, production of hydrogen, green hydrogen, uh, but it only supports such kind of production, meaning that it will replace the existing, you know, use of hydrogen with such kind of green hydrogen. It doesn't mean that the hydrogen usage will expand just with that IRA. In order to expand the use and make it more commercially viable, we need to expand it into steel industries, DRI. Other usages like uh, you know uh, fuel cells and these kinds of things, more, more of a power generation, power storage. Storage. If you how you know the, whether there will be a market mechanism to entertain such kind of expansion of usage of hydrogen. I think this is nobody has yet 
to, uh, has yet to you know, uh, set out a framework for that. So I think this is a place where you know, Europe can think about and take an advantage on how you're going to expand the US usage, how you're going to incentivize the market to use, expand the use of hydrogen. This is another area which the IRA doesn't say at this moment, I believe, which uh, there's an area which we can be exploited here. Demand was never a problem as far as I perceived. I mean, if you hear policymakers at least, they're saying all these sectors all want to be using more hydrogen. So it's, I mean, coming back to the chicken and egg uh, solution, you know, some of it is supposed to be going for heavy industries. Um, it's more a question of who will get it first, um, if I understand correctly, but maybe I'm getting wrong. Alexandra Tomczak. I, I think it's, it's both. We have to work on both demand and supply. And in sort of a normal situation, the market would have this discovery process where, you know, someone eventually jumps in uh, first and the market gets created. What we're trying to do here is to, uh, you know, accelerate this, this process where different actors uh, d discover each other and the price at which uh, uh, one or the other can, uh, can produce renewable uh, hydrogen. So we definitely have to work on expanding uh, uh, demand. Uh, just to give you an example, so we talk about um, consuming two times 10 million tons of renewable hydrogen in the EU by 2030. Today we consume 8 million tons of fossil-based hydrogen. So if we want to get to that level, you would need to bring in a, lot of, a, a bit of uh, the steel making, uh, a little bit in the transport sector, especially for the hard to abate, uh, uh, like heavy duty uh, vehicles. Um, uh, some of it could be blended uh, within, uh, within the existing uh, gas infrastructure, although this is not the best use of, of, of hydrogen, we, we believe. But uh, yes, that, um, the, the demand for hydrogen will need to be expanded to new demand sectors. And, and this is precisely where I think Mitsubishi should be the ambassador of the Net Zero Industry Act. I explained very eloquently that, uh, um, that this is where Europe uh, provides something that other markets don't necessarily provide, which are, uh, well, carbon pricing also is, is a very important uh, um, tool to guide investments at almost uh, 100 uh, euros per ton of CO2, that, in, that signal is, is, is pretty strong. Uh, the climate law, uh, the targets for 2030, soon uh, the discussion starting on 2040 as well. So we are in a, in a, in a unique uh, uh, position to offer to industry um, a safe space where to innovate and where to, where to, where to invest, we hope. Kentaro Zomi? Yeah, I understand that uh, the EU ETS is designed to promote such kind of use expansion of demand. But the, I think the uh, honest voice of the industry is that fluctuating EU carbon pricing is not enough for, not enough for them to make investment decisions. You think there should be what else then? Targets for? Uh... Or, I think uh, they need a more, uh, I think, concrete uh, framework where you can have the predictability of, you know, uh, how the investment is going to be rewarded. Yeah. Okay, let me turn to another question coming from uh, the app. So it's a question coming from, uh, from Safran, uh, the, the French company. Um, it's a question for you again, I'm afraid, Alexandra Tomczak. <laughs> so the Commission did not include renewable and low carbon fuels technologies in the Net Zero Industry Act and Strategic Net Zero Industry List. 
Um, so renewable and low carbon fuels will be crucial to decarbonize maritime and aviation. So we're talking about the demand uh, again. And the Commission launched an alliance last year to boost their uptake. So why not include them? Uh, well, that's um, uh, that's uh, th that's a question that probably should be answered by one of my colleagues who was who was working on uh, on, on on this uh, precise point. But uh, uh, what we explain in the Net Zero Industry uh, Act is um, is a little bit the methodology which we used for identifying these uh, uh, technology areas which uh, which would benefit from the toolkit of the Net Zero Industry Act. And there are sort of two levels. There are the ones that are listed in the annex, and indeed those fuels are not uh, listed uh, in, in that annex. These are the sort of the strategic projects that benefit from even shorter permitting deadlines, uh, etc. And then you have, you know, a sort of a broader pool of net zero uh, uh, technologies where the fuels are, are mentioned. Uh, and uh, and that still benefits from some of the uh, tools within the within the toolkit. But uh, when identifying that annex and that list of really you know the strategic technologies, we uh, we looked at a number of uh, of criteria such as technology readiness uh, level, um, so the TRL level of eight, um, such as uh, uh, contribution uh, significant contribution to mitigating greenhouse gas emissions, and it's based on that set of criteria that uh, we ended up with the list that we uh, have uh, in the uh, annex to the Net Zero Industry Act. And can you explain uh, maybe you know the the, uh, the reasoning behind having these two levels what why is this distinction useful why did you make this decision to you know to have these two separate lists was it was it also because of social acceptability I mean Again, you know, with nuclear, we know it's one of those topics where it can be, um, you know, some countries are very opposed to it. Um, so uh, was that a way of dealing with that uh, um, kind so, of problem? So social acceptability is not a formal criteria in, in, in that uh, regulation. Uh, although I think we, we all know that in order to make any of these things work, we definitely need to uh, work together with the industry on... on uh, uh, increase awareness, increase the level of social acceptability of industrial projects, clean tech industrial projects, uh, in uh, in in particular. But um, uh, but but well, the objective was so based on these three criteria I mentioned. You know, looking at where we can have the biggest. The, the most significant impact in terms of the technologies that we choose when it comes from uh, when it comes to the level of resilience we can achieve when it comes to the level of uh, greenhouse gas emissions that we can uh, we can achieve and you know also the readiness of, of the technology so these are the the criteria that we're taking okay we're reaching the end of uh, this conference before we close I will maybe ask each one of you to say in a couple of sentences the main message that you would like our audience to uh, take home with them, and we can start with you, uh, Peter Rolofsen. I think um, predictability, budget, making sure that there's sufficient incentivization, that it's well organized in Europe is critical for, uh, for us, and I think for any other user of hydrogen, uh, I think those are the, the key message. The, the regulatory framework is well developed, but on this part, I think it's important to see are we truly at the same level as what we see elsewhere in other regions, that I think is still a focus item. Yeah, it's okay. that I should say. Intero Hozomi, your main uh, takeaway message. Yes, uh, Peter said it also. <laughs> 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 but uh, yeah, I think uh, how to increase, you know, 
the usage, the demand side, how to incentivize the demand side, is yeah. going to be the next step which uh, we need to uh, you know, see progress in. Yeah. Yeah. A key next thing to look into. Uh, Lisa Winter? As Elizabeth, I would say, that's a, I think the schemes need to be universal, uh, technology agnostic, and, uh, and uh, predict predictable uh, to actually be able to have a fast pace of uh, escalation uh, into, um, into decarbonisation. Hildegard Bentele. Yeah, I would put a lot on speed because I think we already have lost time. <coughs> I would also put a lot of emphasis to do it together, not nationally, but on the European level. And also on what Lisa said, that we do it as technology open as, as possible. And with regard to pred predictability, we cannot predict everything. We had a war in, now we have the war in Ukraine, which was not predictable. And this is why we also, with regard to the EDS, we asked for some flexibility. And this we said, okay, we cannot increase the carbon price as we intended to do because to give breathing space to the industry. I think you would like to have that. So predictability, yes. And I also would like to have 20-year plans. But, you know, the world is not fully predictable. Alexandra Tromczak. Uh, I would focus on uh, on one message, and that's uh, let's let's try to build uh, uh, this uh, new hydrogen market uh, together. Uh, the twenty the twenty seven uh, with uh, the innovation fund and the auctions playing a leading role here, and coming into the discussion which will start soon on the sovereignty fund. Uh, you know, I'm just listening to to all the comments of the panelists here, uh, and hope that uh, these voices will uh, will also uh, be part of the discussion as we discuss uh, um, the, the the future expansion of the hydrogen bank also into the also into the space of imports because that's something that perhaps we didn't uh, discuss uh, so much today, but uh, we are very much keen to facilitate also the imports of affordably priced uh, renewable hydrogen into the EU. Yes, and these will be projects that will be eligible for funding as well with the Hydrogen Bank. Okay, I think this brings us to the end of this event. Uh, thanks a lot to Yara and MHI for uh, supporting it. Thanks a lot to our speakers for taking the time to be with us today. Uh, if you missed the beginning of this event, you can watch it again on uh, YouTube. And if you want to know more about future events, you can visit our website, www.events.youractive.com. Uh, uh, we hope to see you again soon. In the, media, uh, in the meantime, take care and see you next time. Thank you.